Our gracious God, uh, in ourselves, Father, we are unworthy to come to before you. But Lord, in, in Jesus Christ, you are our loving and merciful Father. So in him, we come before you this day. Uh, Father, please, by your spirit, open our minds and fire our hearts to hear and to love and to long for your word. May we be shaped by it for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, Jim uh, Barron is going to read for us. Jim is going to sort of read from down there. So if you're wondering where the voice is coming from, uh, Jim's back there. But uh, thanks, Jim. We're going to read from Luke chapter 9. Um, uh, if you have your handouts, you'll see uh, the reference in there as well as an outline of the sermon. That will be very handy for you. Uh, but we'll read from Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27. Uh, if you're given a Bible on the way in, there should be a bookmark there. So just open straight up to that passage. Uh, But Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27. Thank you, Jim. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Jim got a great Bible reading voice. <laughs> Wonderfully. It's lovely to hear God's Word read extremely well, isn't it? Because it's the heart of what we do when we're together. For the next three weeks, I'm going to be spending some time, two weeks in Luke chapter 9, and then one week in Luke chapter 12, just thinking about the whole nature of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. Uh, so excuse me for sort of cherry-picking some passages. Normally our, our pattern is just work through whole books of the Bible so you get to see the Word of God unfolded in its context. But I'm uh, here with you for three weeks and so that's the approach uh, I'm taking. When my father turned 60, uh, he had a massive heart attack and uh, he went into, into hospital for surgery for a number of bypasses And that was at a time when 
bypass surgery wasn't quite as sophisticated as what it is today, so much much riskier sort of an operation, and his health wasn't terrific, so there were issues attached to that. Uh, at the time, Sue and I were interstate at Bible College in New South Wales, and uh, my mother was living with my father by herself at that point, and it seemed sensible for me to come back at the time of the operation. And in part, that was because... Neither my father or my mother at that stage were followers of Jesus. And when we'd gone off to Bible college, there'd been a fair bit of tension in our family context. Uh, I'd, I'd left a, a law career in a firm. They thought... In fact, my father had said to me, when, when we went to the state, uh, you're going off to Bible college, you are wasting your life. <laughs> there was that. So I thought, here's a chance to sit with him. And uh, he's, you know, hopefully not agitating, but, but to sit with him. And I wanted to be able to talk to him about following the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as he faced death. So I was sitting with him the night before his operation in the Royal Adelaide Hospital, a number of family members there. And one by one, the family members left. And it was clear that my father wanted to talk to me before... Uh, I left by myself. So as we started uh, talking together one-on-one, he said to me, Paul, just in case I don't make it through the operation tomorrow, there are some things I want to talk to you about. Now, at that moment, I jumped in and I said, no, 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 you'll be fine, Dad. I'm sure you'll get through the operation okay. It won't be any problem. I thought... What am I doing? The whole reason I came to talk to him was about death and dying. But I found myself by nature, I think, doing what most of us do when we're confronted with death. Sort of trying to avoid it or, uh, you know, uh, euphemise about it or be, be general in relation to it. That sort of thing. We avoid conversations about death. In fact, I think most of us treat death... Uh, like a, you know, we're on a journey through life on a bus and we're taking in all the sights and the one thing we just don't think about is the destination. That's the nature of the society that we live in, I think. And I found myself doing that with my father. When we turn to Luke chapter 9, Jesus is about to start a journey. Right, the passage we looked at comes just before he signals the start of a trip. In fact, if you've got your Bibles there, it'd be really good to have it open at that passage that Jim just read from, or your iPads or iPhones or whatever you use. And turn with me to Luke 9, verse 51. This is what we'll look at next week, but it's, it's a turning point geographically in this passage. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, it's a key turning point in Luke's gospel. We're talking at this, this uh, stage about a trip of about 100 kilometres from where he is to Jerusalem. That's, that's where he's heading. And each step he takes on this journey is a step closer to his destiny, his death on the cross. And that's what he's signalled when he, when he talks to them. Jesus knows he's going to die on a cross and he embraces it and marches steadfastly towards it. So the idea is he resolutely he sets his face and won't be diverted. This is where he's going. This is what he's going to do. And on this walk, on this hike, he has with him his 
close friends or disciples. So this journey goes from Luke chapter 9 to Luke 19, and he's walking, and the focus is especially on the close ones, the friends who are, who are near to him. And he gives them final coaching and instructions. He starts to explain about his death. And interestingly enough, his friends try and persuade him it's not going to happen. They're not willing to embrace the idea of Jesus dying. Let's, let's look at it a bit more closely. Obviously, his friends thought they'd backed a winner. You picked it up in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 9. These disciples have been with Jesus for a few years now, and they knew that they'd backed a star. So back in Luke 1 and 2, there are amazing prophecies and angels surrounding the birth of Jesus, quite spectacular events. You go to places like Luke 4 and 5, and Jesus is just healing everyone with any sort of sickness. Uh, He casts out demons. He raises paralytics so they can walk. There's a man with leprosy that's cured. You come to Luke chapter 8, and Jesus calms a storm. He controls the weather in the presence of his friends. He also brings a dead girl back to life. They're extraordinary things. If Duncan uh, did these Sunday by Sunday, you'd have trouble. You wouldn't fit the people in this building. So spectacular it is. And that's the story with Jesus. He is attracting... An enormous crowd. He's the 21st century sort of cover of Time magazine. Documentaries today would have been filmed about him. Uh, he is the man, the megastar. And these disciples, they're, they're basking in the reflected glory of Jesus. And so Jesus asks questions. Verse 18, he says, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they reply, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. Jesus, everyone knows you are the big man in town. (laughs) Everyone knows that. But Jesus says to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. And this isn't a surname, you know, Jesus H. Christ. That's not, not what's being talked about here. When Peter says this, he's picking up on Old Testament understanding, which is saying this is God's anointed, appointed one, uh, the great king who was to come. But what is P- Peter thinking at this point? When he says, you are the Christ, what does Peter have in mind? I think he's thinking Christ equals success. He's thinking Christ equals political power, fame, money. Peter's thinking, I have backed a winner. And when it all comes together, I'll be in the photo shoot with the king. It'll be Jesus and me and his close friends. We'll be there. We'll get the reflected glory. You see, Peter has the right name, but he has the wrong content. He's he's understood, but not understood all at the same time. And so what Jesus does is he starts filling in the content. He starts talking about his suffering and his death and the essential nature of those, his rejection, 
He starts explaining what's to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And it's a 101 lesson for these disciples. Now, of course, the thing is that if you're a follower of Jesus or you have been for some time, these sorts of ideas are really familiar to you. Uh, You know about Jesus going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross and suffering. You, You get that if you've been a Christian for any length of time. But when Jesus unveils it to these disciples, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, we're right in the middle of the football season, grand final week for the AFL. It's all going to happen this coming weekend. And, of course, the, the Crows have been knocked out. But there's still been a lot of talk about Patrick Dangerfield over this last week, and he won the medal last night, I think, for the Crows and all that sort of thing. I want you to imagine that, that um, Duncan had organised for Patrick to be here this morning and we were going to interview him, right? And so we asked him a few questions like... Why on earth would you leave the Crows to go to Geelong? Geelong, of all teams, you know, why would you do that? And we asked a series of questions. And, and Patrick Dangerfield, instead of talking about you know, his football success, this, this fit, incredibly vibrant, athletic young man, instead of talking about those things, he says, you know, what I'd really like to talk to you about today, as a 26-year-old man who's at the top of an athletic career, what I'd really like to talk to you about today is the fact that I'm going to die. It'd just be a clangor, wouldn't it? Yeah, sort of a total, no, you know, no one wants to hear about that. Jesus, at the height of his fame, says, you know, what I want to talk to you about is the fact that I'm going to die. And the disciples are going, what? How does this work? Jesus explains his death to those who would call themselves disciples. So let's look at it together. The thing is, Jesus makes very clear, I think, as you work through this passage, is that death is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. Australians love sport and they love watching it, not necessarily participating in it. Sue's had to adjust to my family background approach to watching sport on TV. Right? We are TV yellers. You know, you know, some people are TV observers, but we interact with the TV when sport is on. And Sue could never get this. Why are you yelling at a TV that can't hear you? You know, we get all agitated, you understand? But armchair athletes. But there's no option like that if you're a Christian. You can't be an armchair observer yeller. You've got to participate in what's going on. Jesus talks about his death and the way it affects each one of us. I think when Jesus starts to reflect on the fact that he's going to the cross, there is the immediate implication that you know if Jesus is going to die, it's a reminder that we will all die. Uh, Death has a strange way of mocking our achievements or our success or our acquisitions. I was talking to someone just outside on the way in and we talked about someone we mutually knew and there was that sense of they've given themselves to some things that the world regards as successful in terms of the trappings. And the reality is it doesn't matter how much you acquire or accumulate or a name you make for yourself, eventually you're going to die. You're going to die. And at that point, what is what you've done? What does it count for? But Jesus' death is much more than just the end to a life and the sort of bottom line at which you add up the success of a life, much more than that. And the key appears actually in verse 22 here in chapter 9, 
Let me take you to that. Because two times in verse 22, Jesus talks about the fact that he must suffer and must be killed. See, I can say to you this morning, I will die. Okay? We can all say, we will die. Jesus is not saying, I will die. He is saying, I must die. And it's a divine must. It's the inevitability of his mission in coming into this world. The key to God's plan to sort out relationships between himself and us. Now why? How does that work? I want you to imagine for a moment that as I'm speaking to you, my phone, mobile phone rings, right? And I, <coughs> I pull it out and I, think, I say, oh, I should have switched it off, you know, and then I look and I see who it is and I go, look, I think it's really important I just take this. Would that be okay if I just take this call, right? So I step away and I answer the phone and start talking and I listen. I say, sure, sure, well, I am preaching, but just for a minute or two, that would be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, let me just grab a pen. Yeah, okay. Bread. Cereal. Milk. Yeah, that should be no trouble. Oh, yeah, I could be there maybe about 2.30 or so. That should be fine. Look, I am preaching, so if you don't mind, I probably should go now. Is that okay? Good. Great. Thanks for the call. Bye. Right, I put the phone away. Right, now, at this point, even if I say, sorry about that, right, how are you feeling? You say, I genuinely did it. How would you be feeling? You'd be saying, man, that is just so rude, you know. I may be rude if you did it. <laughs> but, uh, sorry, I'm not, if you do get a call, don't worry about it. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, for the preacher to take a call and actually take it during the middle of a sermon, yeah, come on, this is just not good form. The reason I've talked about that, you're probably thinking, what on earth has this got to do with anything? Right. The reason I've talked about that is because there's a sense in which we all treat God that way. You see, we all sort of treat him by pushing him to one side or treat him ignorantly as if there are other things that are more important. You know, we're too smart or too cool or too busy to have time for Jesus. Or maybe we just call on God when we have some sort of emergency. You know, the emergency God. Treat him like he doesn't exist, like he's a block of wood until there's a need. And then you go, oh, God, if you are there, help me out here. You know, sometimes we can treat God that way. Or maybe we can even be someone who counts themselves as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and we get to a point where we say, I know what it means to follow you in this particular situation and I'm not going to do it because I think I know better in terms of what's good for me. Any of those examples are what the Bible calls sin, a failure to treat God the right sort of way. That's sin. It cuts us off from God, and Jesus must die to deal with our sin so that we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. 
You see, when you get the connection between Jesus' death and you, me, then you understand why he must die. I made the connection when I was about 19 years of age. I'd gone through life, I knew about Jesus, but never become a follower. And I was working in a supermarket stacking shelves after hours. Not a job you have to think too much about. It meant I could think about lots of different things, but it paid my way through university. And as I was stacking shelves there one night, and at this stage I'd been reading the Bible with somebody, and I thought, Jesus, Easter Bunny, Father Christmas Jesus, that's where I'd started. And then moved to a point where I thought, Jesus, probably real historical figure and probably did die on a cross, but thought, so what? And then this night when I was stacking shells in the supermarket, I got this incredible conviction of my sin, my failure to treat God and other people properly. It was like a DVD was getting played through my head. I didn't switch it on and I couldn't switch it off. And at the end of that, I suddenly got it. I thought, okay, now I I understand why Jesus had to die. Because I needed to be forgiven. That's the must that Jesus is talking about here. And what he does is he then goes on to explain how not to be a spectator. If you get the must of his death, how not to be a spectator. So verse 23, he says you've got to deny yourself. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Now, this is not saying, I'm not Paul Harrington, right? I'm really Duncan Andrews, you know, taller, younger, and more intelligent. You know, it, it's not saying that. It, the hardest thing in the world is to, to deny yourself. I is the most significant word in the human language. You know, it's, it's the one we, we go back to all the time. When Jesus says, deny yourself, he means your focus in life shifts from here to him. He becomes the centre of your universe, not yourself. When you realise Jesus died for you, he becomes the one that you follow. When Sue became a Christian, similar stage to me, uh, and you ask her about this over morning tea, one of the key things in her decision, or the way she decided to follow Jesus was, she said, God, I will no longer tell you what you can be like. I will let you tell me what you are like. Uh, that's, the, that's the total reversal in life when it comes to putting Jesus at the centre of things and God's purposes. No longer me telling God what he can do, he will tell me. Yeah, talk to Sue about that over morning too. He goes on, he says, take up your cross, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross. Now, this is not a call uh, to take up jewellery. And in the first century, crucifixion was enormously common. Josephus, the historian, records one occasion when a thousand people were crucified on the one day. So very common, gruesome, gruesome and cruel and humiliating way to be killed. Jesus is not glorifying suffering at this point. He's not saying, if you're a member of Trinity South Coast, we should all get T-shirts saying, 
you know, I'm a member of Trinity South Coast, come and suffer with me. You know, it's, not, it's not a great slogan really from promoting a church in some ways. He's not promoting suffering. But what he is saying is if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as he goes and suffers and dies, you too, if you follow him, will encounter suffering and consequences. That is, there will be opposition, there will be cost, uh, there'll be mocking, you might be hated. Yeah, different points. I've had friends that I came through university with and when I became a Christian, uh, they thought they knew me. Then they thought I'd, I must have I'd become an idiot, you know. <laughs> they thought I was stupid for becoming a Christian. And I've had that over the years. Or if you look at different debates that emerge in the media right now. So we have the um, same-sex marriage debate right now. If you take that view of human sexuality and relationships that the Bible holds and people around the world, yet alone Christians, have held for millennia, right? if you put that forward in our context, not only are you ridiculed, but today you're regarded as being evil. It's the first time I can recall Christians being explicitly regarded as being evil for holding Christian views in our society. But it's probably the trend of where things are going, is my guess, in terms of this sort of society. If you follow Jesus, there's a cost. Jesus says daily, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, he must do it on a daily sort of basis. It's the consuming passion. Uh, For those of you who are retired or those of you who are employed full-time at this stage, if you've got a a boss and you don't turn up to work and that boss rings you up and says, where are you? And you say, you know, didn't really feel like coming today, you know. And your boss says, well, what about tomorrow? Look, I'll let you know. Uh, This is probably not a terrific approach when it comes to employment. It's the same when it comes to being a Christian. The Christian life, following Jesus is the occupying reality of life. It infiltrates your work, it infiltrates your thinking about family, your priority, your relationships, your neighbours, your money, your, you name it. It's, it's all consuming, all infusive in terms of the way in which it works itself out. And I think one of the challenges of being a disciple is how you allow the word of God to keep shaping all your thinking and your heart and your activities you know, and that's a lifetime quest. You know, I think there are so many things now, 35 years on after becoming a Christian, that I look back and what I thought when I became a Christian, I think, how did I ever think that, you know? But I suspect in 15 years' time or 20 years' time, if I'm still alive, I'll look back to now and think, how could I have ever thought that, you know, in terms of not realising the implications of following Jesus and how serious it was. And then when I'm with Jesus in heaven, I'll get it. You know, that, that's discipleship. It's ongoing. It's long-term. There are implications. And Jesus says, verse 23, follow me. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem on the cross. And he says, coming. Do you understand what's involved when I come? That's the call for every follower of the Lord Jesus. And then what he says is, what you need to do is to count the cost. 
You hear the extraordinary demands of following Jesus, the implications of it. Stop, make the right assessment. And that's what we get to when you get to verses 24 and 25. When Jesus has these interesting words, aren't they, about how to gain and lose life? How to gain and lose life. Let me read them. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? People in our society are constantly making a grab at life. Often it turns into how do I extend my life or the quality of life or the experiences I have on the route. Uh, So, you know, you you look at any newspaper or advertising right now and you see adverts about, you know, fat-free, low-cholesterol diets, uh, what's good for you to eat, what's good not to eat, how much exercise you should get, lowering stress... And even if you've got all the internal things right, there are lots of external things you can do because over time you, you know, you bald, sag, bag, you know, that's the reality. And so the job of plastic surgeons is to take things that have fallen down, you know, and redisplace the fat from here up to somewhere else, you know, sort of keep reversing the process. But but in the end, gravity wins, you know. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? Gravity always wins when it comes to that sort of thing. Jesus says you need to look for meaning and life and purpose in the right place. And our temptation is to look in the wrong place. We think that work, or if I was looking at the great idol for Australians, family. Family. So what is the one thing Patrick Dangerfield said about football? Football isn't my life. No. There are more more important things. In fact, the most important thing in life is family. That's what he said at the middle presentation. Now, get me, I'm not saying... I'm all family, actually. I'm pretty keen on the idea. <laughs> but it's not life. But it is for Australians. That's as far as our idols go, I think. But Jesus says, verse 25, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Tolstoy uh, wrote a short essay entitled How Much Land Does a Man Need? So Tolstoy is a Russian novelist and he tells this short story about a, f- a farmer who owned, not a farmer, but a, you know, a man who owned vast estates of land and he had this peasant serf who worked for him, who won his favour. So the, the great farmer said to the peasant, what I'm going to do is give you as much land as you can on your own two legs Get around in a day. That will be for you and for your family for posterity. This peasant farmer saw what a great opportunity it was and so he, he mapped out the uh, master's property, worked out the best parts of it, uh, went into training in terms of building up his health, worked out how far he thought he could get in a day. The day came, they started off at this hill. As soon as the sun came up, off he set. And the story traces how this man... Uh, goes as fast as he possibly can, running, walking, you know, uh, adjusting his timetable, didn't have a watch, but adjusting his timetable as he went to try and work out, could he take in this lake or not, Did he, you know, the water, and, and working out how far he could possibly go. And as the story gets towards the end of the day, the man is exhausted, but he's running for his future. Exhausted, exhausted, as he comes back towards the hill, 
that he set out from. And as he gets back towards the hill, he eventually gets back to the base of the hill and he has to reach it before the sun sets. And as he gets to the bottom of the hill and he's to the top, the sun has set. And he feels like an enormous failure. All that effort for nothing. And then he hears this, this sort of yelling and cheering from people who are waiting at the top of the hill for him. As he looks up, he can see that while the sun has set at the bottom of the hill, at the top, the sun is still shining. And so with this last superhuman effort, he makes his way to the top of the hill before the sun sets, achieving his goal. And then because of the exhaustion, he immediately dies. It's a Russian story, you get that. <laughs> All Russian stories seem to finish that way. And So what's Tolstoy's point? Remember the title? How much land does a man need? Two metres? By one metre? By two metres. That's how much land a man needs. And that's the point of the story. You can gain the whole world, a whole world, and lose your life, and what have you gained? Jesus says, you can lose your life trying to make something of it, or you can make Jesus and his death your focal point, and you serve him, and you have life now, and for all eternity. That's the promise. So let me, uh, as I conclude, ask you, are you a follower of Jesus? Uh, inevitably, when God's people meet together, there are people who gather with us who are trying to work out the answers to those questions. And we're just delighted if that's your situation here this morning as you're trying to work stuff out. Can I ask you, though, where are you looking for life? Have you understood the must of Jesus' death? But do you clearly understand from what Jesus is saying here that following him is not for wimps? It is a big ask to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you ought to count the cost properly. Jesus does not brook competitors. He is meant to be the centre of our very existence. Or as I suspect is the case, many of us here this morning are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and some of you will have been followers for, for many years. So can I ask you, are you denying yourself? Are you taking up your cross daily and following the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you being distracted or seduced by other things? And are you neglecting the one who went to the cross and gave his life for you? Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem and die for you. Uh, friends, that is a compelling vision of the Saviour, the Messiah, the great King. He is worth following. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you uh, for your word and we thank you that we can uh, reflect on it together today. Uh, Father, we see Jesus 
identified as Messiah but not understood. And we know that for us, uh, it's so easy to do exactly the same thing, to recognise but not follow. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to ponder the nature of what it means to have been rescued from sin and death and to have our hearts and minds captured by the King. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to work that out together and to encourage one another, but most of all to keep our eyes fixed on the one who set his face to go to Jerusalem for us, to understand that that rugged cross that we sang of earlier is the, the cross that forms the centrepiece of all existence and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, help us not to think we can grab hold of the world and have following the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to realise the folly of doing that. Let everything we have and are is meant to be used in service of the great King. Father, keep giving us that ability to run the race, the long distance, not to lose heart or focus or a sense of that compelling purpose that you've called us to. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.